0: I should have said this earlier. I bring you a greeting from the Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Mebane. You are very much loved and esteemed and prayed for there. And it's a privilege to be with you, for me to be with you this morning. I'd like you to turn, please, to Psalm number 130. I think everyone should have a short list of go-to texts, a short list of texts that you have in your memory banks, that you have some data file someplace where there's a short list of texts, scripture texts that you can go to when you have special needs. There's some times you need to have, have special needs of refreshment, you should have some texts that you go to. There's some times where you need special, guide, uh, special guidance, you should have some texts that you can go to. And I would like to encourage you to make Psalm number 130 uh, one of those go-to texts. It is certainly, it is certainly a, such a text for me. Psalm 130 is described as a Psalm of ascent, a Psalm of going up. And what that title refers to is that when the people of God would come from various parts of Israel to go to Jerusalem for various feasts, when they went to Jerusalem, they would sing certain psalms together. And Jerusalem was considered the highest point in the world. So wherever you're coming from, you're going up to Jerusalem. You are ascending to Jerusalem. Well, this is one of those psalms that was chosen to be sung again and again and again on these ascents to Jerusalem. It's also a psalm of ascents in another way. The first verse of the psalm starts out in the depths. It's one of the lowest postures you can imagine. And by the time you come to the end of the psalm, through graduations, you've come to a point of thinking of God's abundant redemption. So it's a psalm of ascents in terms of the emotional structure of the psalm as well. I'd like us to look at this psalm in some ways in terms of an overview. You know the genius of poetry? The genius of poetry is to take large subjects, profound emotions, and condense them into well-chosen words, into into a few well-chosen words. And that's what you have here. You have a poem. You have some very large thoughts that are brought down into a very short number of words well, I'd like us to look at the words, but I'd like us to open up just a little bit about what these words should convey to us. Uh, please, if you have your Bibles open, I'd like you to think of this psalm under four headings. I'm gonna give the heading and I'm going to read the text. The first heading is that we should think of David's anguish before God. Verse one, out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The second division of the Psalm is David's acknowledgement, his acknowledgement of unworthiness. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The third division is David's awakened sense of mercy. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And the last heading would be David's assured hope. Verse five through eight, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the morning, I'm sorry, my soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. He shall redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. So I want us to think of David's anguish, David's acknowledgement of unworthiness, his awakened sense of mercy, and his assured confidence in God. The first two verses are an expression of anguish, out of the depths I have called to you. Now there's no historical reference in this psalm. You don't know exactly what the trauma was for David when he wrote this Psalm, but he uses language that I suppose would communicate with each person here to be drowning, to be in the depths, to be overcome, and to be crying out. Perhaps some of you have been in the ocean and you've lost your footing, or perhaps some of you have been in a river where you are drawn out into the stream in such a way that you realize you you were in trouble. Well, that's the picture that's here. I, I was recently in the ocean. I'm not a very good swimmer, and where I was, I was, quickly, I was quickly drawn out to a situation where I couldn't get my feet on the seabed. And there was a sense of, of quick panic until I could get my feet on the seabed. Well, imagine that you are in the ocean. Imagine you are drawn out by a riptide. And imagine you can't get your bearings. And you, you can't do anything but go up and down in the water. And you're crying out for a lifeguard to help you. Well, that's the picture here. David was in some kind of overwhelming circumstances and he was crying out to God for help. I repeat, if you ask the question, what was the circumstance? There's not an answer to that question given in this Psalm. There's not a historical context. But this, as it turns out, and those of you who read the Psalms a lot, you already appreciate this, that this is a picture that is often in the Psalms and sometimes this sense of being overwhelmed, is related to a context, there are reasons for being so overwhelmed. So I'd like us to look at four of those, four of those psalms where the psalmist uses this kind of language, but where he does identify what the circumstance is, where he does identify what the problem is. Please look at Psalm number 69, Psalm number 69. He is in the depths again in Psalm 69. And in this Psalm, the problem, the circumstance that causes him so much distress is his enemies, his enemies and unsympathetic friends, his enemies that hate him and friends, even family, whom he might have expected to receive some support from. He's now in a situation where his enemies are trying to hurt him and he's consumed with zeal for God's house and people who ought to be sympathetic with him have actually abandoned him. Look at the language of Psalm 69 verse one. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait upon God. Now here he begins to identify the problem. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the numbers of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. And at different points in the psalm, he's going to make the point that he's not at fault in this. But nonetheless, he's hated by these enemies and they are against him look at chapter look at verse 7 because for your sake i have borne reproach shame has covered my face he's he's in a situation where his enemies hate him want to do harm to him part of the complex of this situation is that he is he is suffering for god's sake verse 9 because zeal for your house has eaten me up he he says in verse in verse uh, in verse 8, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. I'm going to read verse 9 again. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now he expands on that in this psalm. <clears throat> because we're not to be here until early in the afternoon, I'm, I'm going to stop reading there. But you'll, you'll see this undersword throughout this psalm. Enemies hate him. They're trying to hurt him. His family and people that he might have found support in are not being supportive of him. And somehow in the mix of this is his zeal for the house of God, which is part of the source of the criticism that's being brought to him. That's that's the dilemma that he's in. And he likens that unto drowning. Turn to Psalm number 88. We're just trying to look at, at examples of what this drowning, what the circumstances might be. In Psalm number 88, the reference is to unexplained and dark providences. Psalm number 88 is one of the most despairing psalms in the Bible. It was written at what must have been a very low point in the psalmist's experience. This psalm does not explain does not contain any expression of hope. It's a despairing psalm because the writer was in a despairing situation. The only bright part about this psalm is that in this situation which he could not comprehend, he's still looking to God. That's the bright part of this psalm. He's still looking to God. But he's in a situation which seems unexplainable to him. Again, look at the language. Psalm 88, verse 1. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths, that's that's our word, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because affliction. Then he goes on to write about how he's daily called out to God. Verse 13, but, I have, but to you I have cried in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me Off. Well, what is the situation here? The situation for him is that he is in agonies of various sorts. He believes, he knows that he's in this case because God is pushing his hand down upon him. He refers to God's anger with him, pushing down. He's been praying and he's without hope. It's like I'm trapped and I can't get out of this. This is the depths. In the one case, the depths is related to his enemies and being misunderstood. In this case, his sense of being in the depths is because there are just unexplained providences. God is doing something that's hurting him and he doesn't understand that and he's in the depths crying out. The third illustration would be Psalm number 42. Psalm number 42. And the depth that he's crying out from in Psalm number 42 is his spiritual dullness. Psalm number 42, I'm just going to break into the psalm and read in verse seven, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Well, there's that picture again. You imagine somebody at the bottom of Niagara Falls, the waterfalls are pouring down upon him. He's being pushed down and coming up and pushed down and coming up. Well, that's the picture here in verse verse seven. All your waves and billows have gone over me. He hears the roar of the waterfalls of God's providence. Some translations, I'm not sure what translation you might have. Some translations refer to waterfalls. Another translation refers to water spouts. You know what the water spout is? It's a a typhoon in the water. it's, It's a funnel cloud in the ocean that comes and picks up everything in its path and dumps it down and picks it up and dumps it down. Well, whichever is the picture, David is envisioning a situation where he's just being inundated with the waters of dark providences. Well, what is the problem in this psalm? The problem in this psalm is he feels so distant from God. The problem in this psalm is he can't understand why is my soul cast down? Why why do I have this sense of distance from God? Now, there's a fourth text that I'd like us to look at by way of illustration, and that would be Psalm number 40. Psalm number 40. In Psalm number 40, you have David being in a situation where he feels overwhelmed by his sin. Psalm number 40, we'll just look at verse 12. Verse 11, do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth preserve me, for innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Well what is what is the overwhelming situation here? It's his sins. It's his sins. In the one in the one case that we looked at, it was his enemies and his unsympathetic friends. In another case, it was unexplainable providences. In another case, it was his distance from God. In this case, it's his keen sense of guilt for, for his sins. They were so many and they were just overcoming him, so that his heart was failing. Well, what are the depths? that the psalmist is referring to in Psalm number 130. I just repeat, the, the writer doesn't say. The writer to, of Psalm 130 does not identify what the problem was. And I think we should take from that that this is meant to be a psalm that fits almost every situation where we're despairing. Whether we are despairing because of our sin or whether we are despairing because of some unexplained providence or whether we're despairing because of unsympathetic friends, or whether we're despairing because enemies or Satan himself is doing distressing things to us, we can fit our overwhelming circumstances into this psalm. The psalm is meant for a pattern for all of God's people in all forms of distress. And you don't need to think very long about the biographies of God's people, probably your own biographies, to identify things that have been overwhelming to you. We haven't had your footing. We've not known really what to do except to cry out to God God, please come. God, please come and do something. Some of God's people live in very difficult marriages. Some of God's people are married and their spouse leaves them and they're overwhelmed with anxiety in that situation. Some Christian people are raising children and perhaps they've done a very bad job of it at some point and they're at a point where they're losing their children and there's a kind of anxiety that overwhelms them. There's nothing to do but to cry out and to beg God. Some people have chronic health problems that are not solvable. No doctor knows what to do and life is being destroyed and so what? You cry out to God like this. Well, what the... What the circumstances for you that are overwhelming you might be unknown to other people, certainly unknown to me. This is a psalm for people that feel overwhelmed with circumstances that they cannot themselves solve. So, the second point of this psalm, though, thankfully the psalm doesn't stay in the depths forever. The second part of the psalm is David's acknowledgement of sin, his acknowledgement of unworthiness, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Appreciate this movement. David intuitively turns to God. David is in this overwhelming circumstance. He can't get his bearings. He's he's not able to fix this. So what does he do? Well, of course, what does he do? He does what a Christian does. He does what a a born-again person does. He does what a godly Jew would have done. He turns to God, but just attention to what first comes to his mind. In this psalm, and we mustn't, take, we mustn't take any one psalm as the expression of piety, but in this psalm, his first thought is not Psalm 23. In this psalm, his first thought of God is not about God being his shepherd. His first thought is not about God being his heavenly father. His first, nod, his first thought in this psalm is not about God's infinite, good, infinite goodness. His first thought in this psalm is about God as judge. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Now, that is not always the case, thankfully. In many situations, we are despairing. We turn to God. The Holy Spirit enables us to think of God being our Father, of us being reconciled to Him. But in some cases and maybe this has been your experience, in some cases, the first thing that comes to your mind is how unworthy you are of the help that you're seeking from this great God. I'd like you to turn back to Psalm number 69 because in that Psalm, you see this very principle quite plainly. Psalm 69 is, we've already turned to it, it's not primarily about David's sin. It's primarily about this overwhelming situation where his enemies are hurting him and people that should be sympathetic to him are not, it's in that context that he makes this statement in verse five. O oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Now, that, his anxiety about his sin is not the primary burden of that psalm. The primary burden of that psalm is his enemies and being hated and people who should be sympathetic with him not being but he can't contemplate that in this psalm without being aware of his own sins. He doesn't say the real problem is my wickedness. No, the real problem is these people that hate him. But in the context of that and in the context of knowing how much he needed the help of God, his own unworthiness intrudes itself into the picture. I just want to repeat, this is not something that always happens, it's not something that always should happen people of God should have a sense of God being their father. people of God should have a sense of, of God being reconciled to them. They should have a sense of access. But the truth is what happened here, what's explained here, what's illustrated, rather, what's illustrated here it does happen to us. We do come into overwhelming circumstances and we're not immediately helped with thoughts of God being our Father. We're we're immediately impressed with how if God would just take some of our iniquities and hold them against us, we would have no possibility of standing before this God whose righteousness and holiness would just crush us and roll over us if it pleased him to keep a record and hold that record of our sins against us. Now I'm repeating myself intentionally this is, not always, this is not always the experience of God's people, but it sometimes is the experience of God's people that when they're crying out for help, the first thing that comes to their mind is their unworthiness. Now, why is that? Why might that ever happen? Well, I trust the answers to that are obvious because our sins are really shameful. They really are shameful. They're not, our sins are not just little things that to God, before God, that our sins are very shameful. Another reason why this very well might come to people's minds is that we do know that God actually does keep track of sins. Listen to this language, the the part of the apex of Old Testament wisdom comes up Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and 13, where the writer says, let us hear the the conclusion of the whole matter. The writer has examined all of reality. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The conclusion of the whole matter is that we should fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or whether evil. Jesus said in our passage in Matthew 12, that he would bring every idle word that we speak into judgment. And whatever has been covered will be revealed when the coming, with the coming of the Son of Man. The Apostle Paul made a statement that causes us to sort of stumble, but it's, it's the statement of the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing. Why do we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to God? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Why might this disposition come into our minds? Why might, when we're crying out to God for help, we might be overwhelmed with this thought, oh God, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? Because our sins are very shameful and because God does keep an account of our sins. And maybe it should also be added because we know that we would be without excuse. We know that we would be absolutely without excuse if God were to hold our sins against us. Remember what Job said in Job chapter 9 and verse 2? How can a man be righteous before God? And listen to this. Job said, if one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time in a thousand If God marked our iniquities and you're that person, God's marked your iniquities, and you think I'm going to resist this record keeping, Job's point is if you contended with him a thousand times, there would not be one successful argument that we could raise against God. It may be that in in our rightful desire to elevate the wonder of forgiveness that we can bypass the awfulness of our sins and the awe of being accountable. Well, David wasn't bypassing that. David was aware of of some of these texts that I've just read to you. Lloyd-Jones made this statement and you can, it's not the Bible so you can determine whether Martin Lloyd-Jones was correct in this statement he made the statement that no man is a Christian if he has not become speechless before God. He made that statement in his exposition of Romans chapter three, verse nine, where all, all the world, will, will, everyone's mouth will be shut before God. Well, here is something of that sense intruding itself into the psalmist's prayer. If you should mark iniquities, I would have nothing to say. If you should mark iniquities, no one could stand. I certainly could not stand. And different experimental writers on this psalm expand on this principle. This principle that there must be some degree of, of awareness of sin and its dimensions and of accountability before we really appreciate forgiveness. Now you can ponder that. I have no interest, I trust the ministers of the church have no interest to make anyone grovel in their sins. It's not, the, it's not the place of the word of God, it's not Christ's will, it's not for us to make people grovel in their sins. An awareness of sin is to lead us to forgiveness as we'll see in this text. But forgiveness is barely appreciated it's barely appreciated, it hardly motivates us. Forgiveness is barely appreciated, forgiveness hardly motivates us, unless we see how unworthy we actually are of that forgiveness, and that's what flashes through the psalmist's mind. I am drowning, I need you to help me. Oh, my sins, if you would mark them and remember them and hold them against me, I could not stand. The third part of this psalm is the brightest part. The third part of this psalm is David's awakened sense, his renewed awareness, his sense of God's mercy. Now some people think of God as a grandfatherly type figure. I heard one preacher with an Irish accent make this make the point that people think of good old God, you know, good old God, it's his business to forgive, good old God. So if you ask good old God to forgive you, he's like the grandfather who can't, who, he can't resist his, uh, his children. Some of you are grandparents. You have, that, you have that awareness. You can't resist your grandchildren. Well, some people see God like that, that. Of course, that's his business to forgive. Well, we need to appreciate the but in verse 4. It's a juxtaposition. You appreciate what a juxtaposition is? Your juxtaposition is where you put two things side by side in order to demonstrate how different they are. Here's this one reality. If God should mark our iniquities and hold them against us, no one could stand up before that record. But, and here's the juxtaposition, here's the contrast. This God who does keep a record and who could justly hold it against us, this God forgives, there is forgiveness with this God. Now it's an interesting, in the Hebrew language, there's, the word that's translated forgiveness is only used a few times in the Bible, this particular word, and it's always used in reference to God's forgiveness. And maybe there's a point that we should draw from that. If you and I forgive each other, it's real, but it's imperfect if you and I forgive each other. We don't know each other perfectly, we don't know the fault perfectly, we don't know the repentance perfectly, We have remaining sin in ourselves. We forgive, but we still might have a sour attitude. But when God forgives, and the word that's used here is only in reference to God, when God forgives, it's an absolute, full, genuine, exhaustive kind of pardon. You remember from various Bible readings and sermons what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is our sins being blotted out. Forgiveness is God removing our sins from us as far as the east is from the west? Forgiveness is God looking at our sins. You recently heard from Psalm 42, where, somebody, where somebody's transgressions are forgiven. They're removed. It's like they're divorced from him. It's where someone's sins are covered. There's an atoning sacrifice between your sins and God. There's a covering, the covering of Christ's death The covering of propitiation where God looks at you and he sees his son and he does not see those sins. What is it to be forgiven? It's where God doesn't impute sins to us. It's where the record that God keeps of us, you look at the record, nothing is written in there about our sins. Well, if if God does that, if God actually forgives our sins, It's the most amazing thing that can be imagined because they never come back to us. We're forgiven for them. And that's the point of the psalm. Oh, these overwhelming circumstances. I need help. I'm drowning. But I look to God and I'm aware of my sins and if God would push them against me, I couldn't stand. But there is forgiveness with you. But there is forgiveness with you. And I'm going to only pass over this this morning. But notice what it says. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The forgiveness of God does not lead us to presumption. The forgiveness of God does not lead us to indifference. The goodness of God melts our hearts. If there was no forgiveness, we would be hard. If there was no forgiveness, we would be bitter, we would be hard, we'd be ashamed, we'd be distant. But when there's forgiveness, the heart toward God is soft and there's a reverence for God, a desire to serve God, a respect for God the goodness of the forgiveness of God leads to re, to fear. Oh, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. the The fourth part of this psalm is David's assured confidence in seeking God. David's assured confidence. In seeking God. Now the verses of course, I've already read them to you, are, are verse five through eight. And there is more than one thought in verses five through eight. But the primary thought is that having, having written of this exercise of being in the depths, being aware of his unworthiness, being freshly aware of there being forgiveness, now his mind is to hope. Now his mind is to hope. Now his mind is to assurance. And so in these verses, he expresses his own assurance, how he's going to wait for the Lord. And he takes the posture of a shepherd in Israel, and he gives advice to Israel as a whole that they should seek the Lord, they should wait upon the Lord. And I'd like you just just to identify a few things about this looking in hope. First, of course, is to notice the The focus of this hope, there are two points of focus in this. We should hope in God's word, and we should hope in God's character. Look at the language. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word do I hope. Now, assuming that David was the the psalm writer, what word did David have? Well, the king had a copy of the law of Moses. The king had a copy of of what we refer to as the first five books of the Old Testament. The king had a copy of that. There were other parts of the word of God that had been written by the time that David was king. Maybe David could remember the words, surely he could remember, the words of Nathan the prophet when Nathan uh, anointed him and ordained him to be king in Israel. There were many prophetic statements that were made to David which perhaps were written down or certainly they would be remembered. Well, the word, the word written, the word communicated, that was to be the focus of David's hope. He was to hope in the word. And if you are in circumstances that are overwhelming, there's to be hope in the word. We should be scouring the word. We should to go to passages like this. We should be hoping in the word. We shouldn't allow ourselves to be relying upon how we feel or upon our circumstances or upon what our friends might tell us. We should, we should be focusing on the word, going to that word, especially words of promise. But there is another point, and this is it's only supplementary. We should be focusing upon God's character. I just read verse five, and his word do I hope. Now my soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Verse seven, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's that's a focus upon God's character, and the certainty that he is merciful, the certainty that he will bring redemption, even abundant redemption. You know what redemption is? Redemption is deliverance, and there are all kinds of dimensions to deliverance. Deliverance from the from the condemnation of the law, deliverance from Satan's power, deliverance in terms of specific circumstances, deliverance from the world of sin and ultimately being brought into the presence of God himself. Well, that's where the focus is to be. We're to hope in God's word, we're to hope in his character, that there is hesed, there is loving kindness, there is mercy with God and he does redeem his people. Abundantly, the text actually says. It's a big word in the Hebrew. It's abundant forget- uh, redemption. Well, that's to be the focus. We're to, focus. we're to wait upon the Lord, focusing upon his word and focusing upon his character. And that's where our stability is. What are we to wait for? We're with the Lord. What are we to wait for? Well, depending on the overwhelming circumstance, there may be some specific things that you're very much asking God for. You may be asking God for improved health. You may be asking God to reconcile you and your spouse. There may be some very specific things that you're asking God to do. But this Psalm doesn't refer to specific things. And I think the point is that we we really should be in a posture where whatever is overwhelming to us, we're waiting for God to do something. We're, We're waiting for God to intervene whether that intervention is changing the circumstance, whether that intervention is giving us grace to endure, whatever, the, whatever God might do, that's the hope that we have. We're drowning, we're overwhelmed, we're ashamed of our sins, we're aware of forgiveness, so we're what? We're waiting upon God to come. We're waiting upon God to do something because of his word and because of his character. We have want to wait upon God to do whatever is necessary for us in that situation with the awareness he will not tempt us beyond what we can bear. Notice the picture that the psalmist uses. He's going to wait, we're supposed to wait upon the Lord like watchmen wait for the morning. It's actually quite a descriptive picture. Have you you ever been a night security guard? Have you ever been a watchman? I don't think he had a night security guard in his mind, but there were watchmen in Israel, and they would watch through the night. Of course, you watch 24 hours a day if you're a watchman in Israel. But this focus is watchmen looking for the morning. What do you suppose that that would mean? I did have a job once as a security guard in a college uh, keeping watch over the campus. You had to make rounds, and you had to sit in a guardhouse at the entrance to the college, and you work all night. And every night, at least for me, every night, there came a point where it was very hard to stay at it. It was dark, you have been up all day, now you're up all night, you're tired, your coffee is gone. And what do you hope in? The certainty that the sun will rise. It always rises, of course it always rises. So you're, you're the watchman waiting, waiting, looking for the sun to rise, but what? There's a certainty it's going to happen. I think that's the picture here. We're supposed to be like watchmen who are waiting for the morning. Now we're not watchmen who are waiting for this or that, but waiting for the morning, it will certainly come. God will hear our cries and he will bring to us what is in accordance with his word and what is in accord with his character. The heart of this bright perspective that comes in the last of this passage is the fact that there is forgiveness with God. There are lots of texts in the Bible and there are lots of texts in the Psalms that in one way or another declare that God is willing to forgive, that God delights to forgive. And as wonderful as these passages are, God has given a much more powerful, more full statement of his willingness to forgive. He has given his son. He has given his eternal son. God the Son existed forever and ever and ever as a pure spirit with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And God determined that he wanted his son to identify with the sins and the sufferings and the human complex of human beings. And God the Father ordained that his son should become incarnate so that he would understand us, so that he would be sympathetic with us. And then he ordained that this incarnate son, Jesus, would bear our sins upon the cross. And upon the cross he would suffer God's wrath for our sins and he would rise from the dead, and he would send out people everywhere to proclaim the gospel. This God has caused his son to be incarnate because he delights to forgive sinners. He has caused his son to die in the place of sinners that everyone who wants him could come to him and have the application of that death and of that immense reservoir of sympathy that Christ has for human beings that in coming to him, the benefits of his death, the benefits of his immense sympathy could be yours. That is the greatest statement possible, that God forgives sin. He sent his son, and he wants everywhere to offer his son. And he wants people to receive his son, because in his son, there is the absolute forgiveness of sins. And that is my desire for you, for those of you who are God's people already, that you be refreshed in this awareness that though your sins are many and they would crush you, there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. And for those of you who are not believers in the Lord Jesus, your sins will crush you. They will crush you. But they don't need to crush you because this is the day when you could come and come to the Son of God and believe him and be forgiven. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know us all together. You know those here who are indifferent to their sins, and you know those who are broken down by them, and you know those who are in overwhelming circumstances. And we come to you in the light of this psalm. Those who are broken down by their circumstances and those who are not, we come to you in the light of this psalm, and bless you, that there is forgiveness with you. And we pray that you would extend your grace to your people today and to your people, that you would refresh them in this awareness, that there is forgiveness with you. And for lost people, that you would awaken them to that awareness, that there is forgiveness with you, that you would so work forgiveness in, in the category in each of those two categories that you would so work that forgiveness into our hearts that we would revere you as we should. We commend ourselves, we commend the congregation, we commend ourselves to your grace, and we do so in Jesus' name, amen.